Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet you want a look that is timeless. And you also want a custom experience, creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly, and they're also easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. And by the way, their covers are both removable and washable. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofa and sectionals made for outdoor living. Cozy now has expanded from just an online market to a first-person space in Toronto, or you can go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com, C-O-Z-E-Y.com, to start customizing your furniture now. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show.
This is Most Shape Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. For her book, Brave Tart, pastry chef Stella Park spent years developing recipes for iconic American desserts and also studying their history. Today, Parks offers some of her favorite holiday desserts and has a few choice words to say about pumpkin. Pumpkins are not great for pie, and that has historically been the case. There's this hysterical quote from Arthur's Home magazine, which was, you know, along the lines of, like, Ladies' Home Journal. And in 1881, they wrote, Squash is preferable to pumpkin and should always be used instead. But call it pumpkin pie. That sounds better. Also coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll talks about stuffing and safety. Plus, we make a quick and easy cranberry and candied ginger buckle. But first, Chef Vivian Howard takes us into her kitchen for turkey and sides. Howard's most recent book, Deep Run Roots, focuses on the food of her childhood from eastern North Carolina. Vivian, welcome back to Milk Street. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Uh, so Thanksgiving's coming up. Um, what's on your menu for Thanksgiving? Well, we generally do a pretty traditional Thanksgiving. I often do two turkeys, one fried outside and one brined and then roasted. I live in the home of sweet potatoes, where we grow more sweet potatoes in eastern North Carolina than anywhere else in the world. So we generally have at least two sweet potato preparations on the table. So when you say sweet potatoes, are you in the mini marshmallow camp? I'm most definitely not in the mini marshmallow camp. I think that sweet potatoes are sweet already, and I, right. I, I like to try and balance them with more savory flavors. Uh, so lots of times I'll cut the sweet potatoes into wedges and roast them mm. and then make a little dressing with tahini and lemon juice and honey and then sprinkle sesame seeds on top of the Ooh, that sounds- on top of the sweet potatoes. But one of my favorite things to do is treat sweet potatoes like white potatoes and make sweet potato skins. So essentially I'll roast the sweet potato whole and then cut it in half, cut it into quarters and scoop most of the flesh out and then I'll pan fry those skins and serve them kind of like croutons on an arugula salad with the tahini dressing Mm. that I just mentioned. Uh, Are there any specific recipes uh, you want to suggest our listeners make this year? Yeah, sure. You know, I think greens are, uh, you know, an important thing to have on the table at Thanksgiving. But, you know, the way we cook greens in the South often, you know, they just look like a pile of dark mush. And so (laughs) I like to, to cook collards the traditional way. And then I'll take some of the pot liquor and make a bechamel with that. And I bake potatoes and scoop out the the potato part and mix it with those creamed collards that I've Mm. used the bechamel to make and stuff it back into the potato. Mm. The thing I like about doing that for holidays is that you can do all those steps the day before, even a few days before. And if you want to get really adventurous, I like to take the stems of the collards and do like a quick spicy pickle on those. And so I serve those sprinkled on top of the twice baked collard stuffed potatoes. And that gets my greens out of the way. It gives people who want a white potato, the potato product they're looking for. And that's something I've done several years now for Thanksgiving. I love the way you say that that gets my greens out of the way. I sort of like that. You've checked off the greens box. Done. 
I know. Well, we, you know, for Thanksgiving, we do have these obligatory boxes we have to check. Uh, another thing that I'm doing this year that was a big hit last year is a sweet potato and a Gouda spoon bread. Huh. And spoon bread, when I make it, is really more like a fallen grit souffle. So mm-hmm. I make grits and then I fold in whatever flavorings I'm using. And in this case, it'll be roasted sweet potato and grated Gouda cheese. So you've got that sweet and then that smoky that comes from the cheese. And then I separate eggs and whisk in the yolks and then whip the whites and fold that into the grits and then bake it all in a souffle dish. And it puffs up and then it falls but it remains completely like ethereal and light. And it's a great way Hmm. to have sweet potatoes without the marshmallows. And the turkey, anything there? Or is the turkey just obligatory and you don't worry about it? No, no. I I take great pains to, to make turkey. So I brine it in a cooler overnight. And I use lots of like piney type things, pine needles, rosemary, juniper. I think all of those things say... Hmm you know, fall. And then I uh, roast it on uh, 375. But the whole time that I'm roasting it, I'm dipping a folded blanket of cheesecloth in melted butter. And then the last 45 minutes, I take the butter blanket off (laughs) so that the top of the turkey browns. And it's just incredibly moist. And when it's roasting, you smell all of the the pine notes from the rosemary right. and the juniper. And it's, um, it's one of my favorite aromas ever to come out of my kitchen. Do you find if you closed your eyes and took a bite, would those piney ingredients come through in the taste of the meat? You know, I don't, I, I can't say that they do, but you know, Thanksgiving is so much about the the experience of cooking the meal, at least for me. Right, that's true. That that's true. the aroma that the brine produces really is something that I now uh, associate with the holiday. That's a, you know, you surprised me. I, I've, I've done a lot of Thanksgiving menus many, many years in this business that never occurred to me to do that, so... Now, now I have a new spoon bread. I have, I have a piney butter turkey, and I know how to check off my greens box. <laughs> well, I'm so honored to have introduced something to you. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go try all three things this year. Vivian Howard, uh, a real pleasure. Thank you for uh, helping us out, and a very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you. That was Chef Vivian Howard. Her new TV show, South by Somewhere, debuts on PBS in 2020. Mill Street Radio is available anytime, anywhere as a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will try to solve some of your holiday mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. So before we get started, I do have a question for you about Thanksgiving. Do you roast a turkey? Never. I never really? roast a turkey. No. I, I knew it. I knew it. No, you know what? I used to do Good Morning America and talk all about turkey and tell everybody everything they needed to know. And then I came home and we ate braised short ribs of beef. Is that what you do every year? Is every that your, year. Really? Yeah. You can make them. You can freeze them. 
it's so stress free and spetzel. But don't you don't you and Asian feel broccoli. don't you feel like you're not joining in the great American feast day by no. doing short ribs? No, happy's a clam. Family prefers it, insists on it. Do you then not cook any of the traditional sides or desserts either? No, not one thing. You're like Calvin Trillin, who used to do Chinese takeout on Thanksgiving. <laughs> do you make turkey? Of course. How do you make your turkey, Chris? I brace it. <gasps> I cut the breast off. I make a water and some stock, leeks, carrots, it's onions in a roasting pan. Put the dark meat down in the liquid. Put the breast on top. Roast it sort of low and slow. When the breast meat's done, I take it out, the whole breast, both sides. And then I um, let the dark meat continue cooking so it's really well cooked. And then you have the world's best gravy. Well, what about the stuffing? Stuffing is separate. Oh, see, but you do make stuffing. Yeah, I do make stuffing, but it's separate. It's cornbread stuffing. Oh. Yeah, and I do whole wheat Irish soda bread. Oh. And it's phenomenal. I think it's as good as a yeast bread with none of the But it's a quick bread, yeah. It's quick bread. And I do that instead of biscuits or instead of, you know, rolls. I don't care about the vegetables. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Now on to the first call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Laura Goodearly. Hello, Laura. Where are you calling from? Daytona Beach, Florida. Nice. How can we help you today? I'm calling because my question is this. Every Thanksgiving, I cut fresh vegetables, saute them in a pan with butter and some seasoning, mix them with um, some fresh bread that I have cut up about two days before and let it get stale, and then stuff my turkey. But my stuffing becomes very um, moist, too moist. It clumps together. Well... What I've learned is that actually stale bread is not the way to go because it actually absorbs more liquid and you will end up with a mushy stuffing. A better way to go would be to cut fresh bread into cubes and to toast it in the oven yourself. And then it will not absorb as much liquid and will keep its integrity and not mush up. So I'd say don't let it stale. Toast it. Toast it instead. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, sometimes stale bread will trap in moisture. It's not actually that dry, so I think putting it in the oven and drying it out, I think that gets rid of more of the moisture than it's letting it sit around, yes. as I remember my science. Yes. That's okay, what it, I'll do that. Yes. Oh, that was good. That was easy. Yay. Oh. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right, Laura. Thank you. Take Thanks care. for calling. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Um, my name is Melissa, and I'm calling from Bemidji, Minnesota. How are you? I'm doing well. How can we help you? I work for a nonprofit, and we do Meals on Wheels, and we have the holidays coming up. We're very used to seeing certain dishes during Thanksgiving and Christmas. My um, issue is that the colors of a holiday meal are not that exciting, and when you put them in a three-compartment tray, it looks a little bland. And so I was trying to think about ways that will liven up a dish when it comes to garnishes and colors that will also last in a freezer or in a cooler because not everybody gets these meals all the time. Can you include fresh ingredients in a separate container along with the frozen food to garnish, for example? To a limited extent. I feel like putting parsley on these things is like putting grass clippings on food at this point. Well, well, that's a very visual. I yeah. guess you're not a fan of fresh parsley, then. Is that what you're saying? Oh, fresh parsley would be great. But like I said, I work for a nonprofit, and we're in northern Minnesota. It's 
We get a big jug of dried parsley for $5 versus pounds of fresh parsley for not available. So I'm just wondering if there are any fresh ideas on how to prepare something that would be frozen and then later appear more colorful. Uh, I wonder how peas, I mean, frozen peas hold up pretty well as long as you don't overheat them. Is turkey one of the things you're dealing with here, I assume? It is, and I would love to change up the menu, but again, an aging population in northern Minnesota, they're pretty used to what they're used to. I would do a very colorful spice rub when you roast it initially. You can use like a smoked paprika or paprika, uh, lots of other things you can put on the top. So I, I would do a spice rub so at least when it's reheated, it still has some color on the outside other than being pretty bland. You know, red peppers, if they're diced and cooked along with the vegetables, the peas, the carrots, whatever, are going to add color. A compound butter that has some colorful ingredients in it, and that could be put on the potato, That's vegetables. That's a brilliant idea. If you made an herb butter, you know, yeah. the herbs will stay green in that compound yeah. butter. There we are. And taste yummy and not taste like dead parsley. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if I could do that maybe with um, fresh cranberries and orange peel and butter and put that along there as well because those are two nice colors. Yes. That they could have alongside that. Oh, I love that idea. Man, this was a hard one. Yeah, this was a hard one. Well, by the way, it's really impressive you're doing this work. Yes, good for you. I just want to say thank you. Yes. Thank you. Well, thanks for calling. At least we had one good idea. Hey, I'll take it. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843 or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Eric Bogart in Toronto, Canada. How can we help you? Well, I have uh, a strange question about a chocolate pecan pie. So some years ago, my mom tried to make her go-to recipe. We don't make it very often, so it's always an event when she does. And she was really upset with how it turned out and said it was ruined, and she wouldn't even serve it to her guests. So lucky me... When I came home, it was there and ready to be eaten. I think what may have happened is that the filling had overflowed the crust, and when it baked, it turned into this incredible, rich, toffee kind of crust. And does that mean that the filling got between the crust and the bottom of the pie plate or tart pan? Or it just came over the top? I believe it did. Yeah, I think it went up over the top. Yeah, when it goes over the top and then it leaks down in between the crust and the pan, that's when it caramelized, yeah. Well, where was it caramelized? What part of the pie was caramelized? Essentially, all of the crust had caramelized, both the bottom and the sides. Wow. And it was incredible. It was really delicious. (laughs) So the question I have is, is there a way to make this a dependable and repeatable process so I could do it intentionally? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, first of all, all the best things in the kitchen come from mistakes, at least in my... Not just in the kitchen. Champagne was a mistake. Oh, I thought you were talking about marriage or no, or well, relationships yeah, or something. Yeah, um, I don't. Well, yes, you could put at the bottom of your, let's say, tart pan or pie plate, a caramel-like sauce, and then you could put the crust on top and then fill, not to overfilling, fill it and just bake it. And the bottom of the underneath between the crust and the pan would caramelize, right? Yeah, right. Or just put sugar. You could probably Brown just sugar, yeah, know. just put sugar at the bottom of the pie plate. Just sugar the yeah, just sugar it. Uh, put a few tablespoons of sugar, put in the pie crust, fill it, et cetera, bake it, and that sugar in a four hundred degree oven or three seventy five degree oven is going to caramelize. Yeah. 
One other thought I had was to use a pan slightly bigger than what it's designed for to encourage it to go over or to trim the crust a bit to sort of head start it. Would you think that it's more repeatable if we're trying to sugar under the bottom or to try no, to I think you, coax the, the I think you need out? to have a cocktail <laughs> and then give up on the whole idea no, no, I of love overflowing. This idea. Overflowing is not a repeatable scientific experiment. I think it's just not. sugaring the bottom of the pan like a Pyrex pan, just sugar the bottom of the pan and put the crust in. Now, whether you'll be able to get the crust out of the pan <laughs> this may be a different matter. You'd have to do it right away before yeah. the it cools. But it will caramelize. Sets. Yeah. yeah. It will I would try caramelize. that. But I'm not against one of your ideas, which is, you know, cut down on the crust on the sides a little bit so it seeps through. Eric, what do you say you go try our two ideas, the one that you had with I the crust? I think we're going to need to make some pies. Yeah. yeah. And then you let us know. Really appreciate that. Well, Eric, try both. Uh, either way, it's going to taste good. And let us know. Never name your dessert before it comes out, That's right? That's my rule. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Eric. Take Thanks care. for calling. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we're chatting with Stella Parks about Thanksgiving pastries and pies. That and more after the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, over the last decade, Las Vegas has become one of the most unique culinary destinations in the world, and not just on the Strip. It's a city with culinary innovation everywhere you look. Here's one chef's story sponsored by Las Vegas. Hi, I'm Adrian Garcia. I'm the executive chef over at Main Street Provisions. So Main Street, we do new American cuisine with the emphasis on steaks and chops. It's an open kitchen, so you always see me at the pass making sure all the food that goes out, we put a lot of love into it. Personally, I've always loved seafood, and our seasonal fish dish right now is uh, steelhead trout. We actually get whole fillets, and uh, we air dry them, so it's nice and crispy. Uh, We do confit marble potatoes, braised fennel, and then we actually make a seafood broth with shrimp, clams, lobster, tomatoes, ajillo paste, which is a chili paste from Peru. You can eat that broth with anything. The chefs here can be very innovative because Vegas is a destination. You get people from all around the world, so you can open up any type of cuisine and you'll have an audience here. People are always seeking new and new exciting uh, things to eat. So this is a great spot for chefs to just uh, create. And you don't have to go to the strip to find a five-star meal anymore. You can just uh, be on the outskirts and find a restaurant there that, you know, that could be a Michelin-star restaurant like Mastry Provisions. It's off the strip, but I still serve one of the best steaks in Las Vegas. You know, put my name on that. <laughs> From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, Experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Pastry chef Stella Parks is senior editor at Serious Eats, also author of Brave Tart, for which she spent years researching and testing recipes for iconic American desserts. Right now, she shares a few of her Thanksgiving secrets. Stella, welcome to Milk Street. Hey, thank you so much for having me. 
So uh, you're our guide this Thanksgiving when it comes to desserts. Uh, what are you thinking about doing? Well, it obviously wouldn't be Thanksgiving without a pumpkin pie involved. So I have that on the agenda for myself. So when, when you do pumpkin pie, you're Stella Parks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you going to do to it that I don't do to it? Well, so my personal approach to pumpkin pie is to, to not use any pumpkin. Um, my my go-to filling for pumpkin pie is, in fact, a butternut squash, maybe an acorn squash or honey nut, something like that, but not pumpkin. Hmm. And that's definitely a recommendation I have for anyone who wants to make a pumpkin pie from scratch. You know, if, if you're going for the canned filling, grab a can of pumpkin pie, and that's a fantastic place to start, and I'm not going to push anyone to add any more work or complexity to their holiday schedule. But a lot of people come to Thanksgiving thinking, you know, like, I'm going to go all out this year. I'm going to do it special. I'm going to buy a pumpkin. I'm going to roast it. I'm going to, you know, whatever. And pumpkins are not great for pie. And that has historically been the case. Are are you talking about the small sugar pumpkins? Not just the big, obviously, jack-o'-lanterns, which would not be appropriate. A sugar pumpkin would be a great choice if you were determined to go down the pumpkin route. But I really prefer working with squash. They just have like a a richer flavor and it's in the same family. It's all related. So it's not like a complete cop out that you're doing something completely different and off the rails. But historically, this has been a pretty viable option that you see referenced in cookbooks throughout American history. And there's been this pretty like widespread, I don't want to call it a conspiracy, (laughs) but this decision to work with a squash and continue calling it pumpkin pie. There's this hysterical quote from Arthur's Home magazine, which was, you know, along the lines of like Ladies Home Journal. And in 1881, they wrote, squash is preferable to pumpkin and should always be used instead. But call it pumpkin pie. That sounds better. I like that. There's a culinary conspiracy around Thanksgiving. There's always a story behind the story. Um, So uh, many people serve their pie a la mode. Do you serve ice cream with your pie? I've got this toasted rice ice cream that I'm still low-key obsessed with. I've been making it for a pretty long time. And it's just, it has this really nice, comforting rice flavor to it. If you like rice pudding, it's not hard to understand that profile. But in ice cream form where it's perfectly creamy and smooth and just, especially if you use something like a basmati or a jasmine, it's got this beautiful aroma to it and like the light toasted notes. I just like pan toast the rice in a skillet for a little bit before getting started. Uh, and infuse it into my dairy. And it's it's a really versatile flavor. Um, so that's something that is kind of like one of my a la mode hacks. Like if you've got this toasted rice ice cream, whatever you put it on is going to taste more interesting and sophisticated, but it's not like a hard thing. You've got rice in your pantry. You can make this ice cream. Um, so what else is on the menu? Anything else? Um, I might be doing an apple cider spice cake or a caramel hmm. apple cake. Those are two personal favorites for me. I'm like a team cake girl more so than pumpkin pie. The pumpkin pie I make to satisfy like the traditionalists, but I cake is is my deep love in in this life, and I I need a cake. How do you make a caramel apple cake? So this is a recipe that appears in my book, actually. It's one of the variations on carrot cake, and so it's made just like a carrot cake. The Hmm. spices are tweaked a little bit, but instead of using shredded carrots, you use shredded apples or shredded pears. Mm. And so it works the same way. It has a really similar texture and a really similar flavor profile, but tweaked a little bit to kind of highlight the apples more and bring that fall spice into the mix. What do you do about the caramel? That's the frosting? 
Um, yeah. So you can you can get mm. the caramel involved in the cake in a number of ways. You can spike it directly into a buttercream to taste. Um, but after like decorating the cake, crumb coating it and getting your frosting on, I'll chill it down for a little bit and then pour the caramel straight on it. And so because the cake mm. is cold, the caramel will start to congeal around oh, it into like this nice thick good. layer. And that that's really my personal <laughs> sweet spot for an alluring holiday dessert. Wow. That, okay. I, I have your book. Uh, this Thanksgiving, I think I may have to do that. Um, can I ask you just a few uh, sort of troubleshooting questions? So let's assume I'm rolling out pie dough and uh, it's falling apart too dry or it's sticking to the rolling pin. Any suggestions? So my my first order of business there is is not to add more water or add more flour. My personal philosophy when it comes to working with a pie dough is to check the temperature. If a pie dough is really, really crumbly, there's a solid chance that the dough is too cold. And this can be the result of, you know, someone read a tip to use frozen butter uh, or they, you know, thought that the kitchen was too warm. So they stashed their, you know, mixing bowl and stuff in the freezer for a few minutes and it just got too cold. And so now the butter has solidified within the dough and it's made it seem really crumbly and dry. But it's just because the butter is so hard. So if the dough seems to be dry and crumbly, I would just give it a little time to see if it can warm up and soften up as the butter itself softens within the dough. And likewise, if a dough seems really, really wet and sticky, it's probably a good sign that the butter is too warm. Uh, So I would look to address the environmental concerns before I start you know, changing the fundamental nature of the recipe because the level of hydration in a dough has a huge impact on how it behaves. Um, can I ask about knowing when a pie is done? This is something I've talked about a lot, but people overbake their pies. How do you know when a pumpkin pie, a custard pie, for example, is ready to come out of the oven? Yeah, so a digital thermometer can go a long way in letting you know where your pie actually is on the spectrum of doneness. You know, if you stick a digital thermometer in there and it's registering like 120, you've got some time. It needs to go a little bit longer. But that said, you know, if you're gently shaking the tray that a pumpkin pie is sitting on and the whole thing is just a wave of wobbliness, like you can confidently say it needs to go longer. But if you only see a subtle kind of jiggle in the very, very center, like a little wiggle there is fine because carryover cooking is going to push it over the edge once you take it out. And ultimately, you know, if a custard pie cracks, you know, that means it's been overcooked. And most of the time, it's not a big deal. If there's a little crack on it, it's fine. Put some whipped cream on it and call it a day. Don't let yourself stress out over it. Uh, Any last things you want to say about dessert uh, for listeners for Thanksgiving? So for Thanksgiving, I really encourage folks to stick with the familiar. I know we have this, like, inherent itch to just explore and try something new And if you're the kind of person who works well under pressure and you don't mind the stress of trying a new recipe for the holidays, like, by all means, jump in. But maybe if you want to be hiding out in the kitchen and using baking as an escape to avoid some stressful conversations that can come up around the holidays. Oh, now you got my number. Yeah, like a little coping mechanism. Like, sure, try something new. And then if, you know, air quotes, fails, then you've got an excuse to peace out and retreat to the kitchen. But I really like to encourage bakers, especially bakers who are still growing, to stick with something familiar and comfortable that they know that they are confident about and not to add the stress of of a technical challenge on Thanksgiving. You know, this will be the time to say, hey, this is the pie I've made every year, but this year it's even better. And, and that in and of itself, I find to be a very satisfying uh, accomplishment. Stella Parks, uh, thank you so much and have a very happy Thanksgiving. 
Hey, thank you so much for having me. Enjoy yours as well. That was pastry chef Stella Parks. Her book is Brave Tart, Iconic American Desserts. This is Most J Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about one of our favorite Thanksgiving recipes, cranberry and candy ginger buckle. Catherine, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So it's Thanksgiving time. I make a cranberry sauce using the recipe on the back of the bag. That's how creative I am. We thought maybe we'd be a little more inventive and use cranberries for something else, maybe a dessert. So what did we come up with? Well, we actually drew some inspiration from the book Rustic Fruit Desserts by Corey Schreiber and Julie Richardson. And that's where we decided to come up with a buckle. So a buckle, as you know, Chris, is a snack cake, and it has a really delicious crumb topping. Ours has cranberries and also candied ginger in it. So is this the classic one-layer, simple snack cake recipe? Is there anything different about the technique? It is a pretty classic recipe, Chris. We do put together the dry ingredients in a food processor. In order to really streamline the process, once we've combined the flour, the sugar, the baking powder, cinnamon, and salt, we pulse that and we set some aside for the topping. So some of it goes into the batter along with your usual eggs. And we also add some sour cream for extra richness. And then the rest of it, we make a really yummy topping that has some brown sugar and almonds and some more butter. And you just pulse that until it's like wet sand. Did you say candied ginger? Is that going to this that, as well? That's important, yes. Yeah. So the candied ginger is going to go in at the end with the cranberries. We're going to fold that in really gently. One thing to note, you can use fresh or frozen cranberries, but you want to make sure you defrost the cranberries if you're using frozen. Otherwise, the batter will kind of freeze up and get too hard to work with. So a cranberry and candied ginger buckle you did yourself. It's pretty fancy around the holidays. I, I like it actually for breakfast. This is what I would definitely have for breakfast with a couple of cups of coffee. Great job. Catherine, thank you. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for cranberry and candied ginger buckle at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now let's hear from regular contributor Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, so do you have some words of advice or maybe words of warning this week? Well, you know, Thanksgiving's great and everybody you know, gets into cooking the turkey, cooking stuffing. And I thought we might just talk a little bit of safety because <laughs> turkey and salmonella are just one of those things you don't want to screw up. They, they go together, right? <laughs> As the old song goes. Right? They do. I mean, it causes a significant amount of illness in the United States. There's like more than a million cases of salmonella food poisoning in some way every year, which is a lot. Um, it accounts for about 23,000 hospitalizations, and it probably kills somewhere between 400 and 500 people every year. Are there lots of other cases that are unreported, so we don't know the actual number? Well, the vast majority are unreported, probably, right. because most people will get sick and just recover on their own. They'll have, you know, abdominal pain, they'll have bad diarrhea, um, they might have even a fever, but most people will get well. And if they do, then we just don't know what it has. So that right. million is, is an estimate. So guys, a question I, I always thought, and maybe it wasn't salmonella, it was another bacteria, that it doubles every 20 minutes if it's in the danger zone of, of temperature. But that even if you get the turkey up to 160 or 170, whatever the safe zone is internally, that toxins can be created during the period it was at a lower temperature and so the meat might still be toxic, or if you cook it enough, you kill everything. Well, if you cook it enough, you'll kill it, but you are correct. It can 
really set in and get bad fast. So that's why there's a couple rules that you want to think about when you get turkey uh, and you're preparing it to make sure that you stay safe. The first is that don't ever try washing a turkey. First of all, it's almost impossible to get a turkey sterile by doing that. Secondly, you're creating salmonella water, which is going to splash everywhere. And then right. now you've contaminated a kitchen. Right. So don't do that. Second, if you if you buy a turkey frozen, it's not a good idea to let it thaw at room temperature because while it's thawing, it's going to get into that you know roomish temperature area where the salmonella can really set in and start setting up shop pretty fast. And you also want to be super careful about stuffing. You have to make sure that you cook the stuffing inside all the way up to 165 degrees. That can take longer than it right. would otherwise take to cook the turkey. Now you're overcooking the turkey in order to make the stuffing safe. So whatever benefit you might see in putting the stuffing taste-wise inside the bird, you're screwing up the turkey. So probably not a good idea. It's much safer to cook stuffing on the side. And if you feel like you need to stuff it afterwards, feel free once everything is up to 165 degrees. But you also don't want to sit around for too long even with a cooked turkey. You know, salmonella still occur with reheating turkey. You just don't want to leave turkey sitting around that long out in normal room temperature if you don't have to. Words to the wise. Uh, thank you very much. Have a great Thanksgiving. You too. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik tells a story about Philip Roth and the magic of Thanksgiving leftovers. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I use my basement music room to record this show, and I've been looking for a leather office chair for ages now. The good news is that I just found one. It's called the Gervin Charm Tan Office Chair which I found on a great furniture site called Article. Article offers a wide variety of designs from mid-century modern, coastal, and industrial to Scandi and Boho designs. Article also offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. You pick the delivery time, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Plus, the prices are more than fair. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash MilkStreet, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash MilkStreet for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more.
This is Christopher Kimball. You know, if you want to taste the world, travel to Las Vegas. It's one of the most international food cities in the United States. Here's one Baker story sponsored by Las Vegas. My name is Kimberly McIntosh. I am the chef owner of Milkfish Bake Shop, and I am a 2024 James Beard semifinalist for Outstanding Pastry Chef and Baker. I would say that the definite fan favorite would be our carioca dessert. Carioca is a Filipino street food that's like a coconut mochi fritter tossed in a coconut milk glaze and then some caramelized coconut curds called latik. And then I also added a really amazing Philippine sea salt. It's one of those bites of food where you get a different flavor every time. I don't think people are necessarily expecting that with something that looks so simple. And it piques their interest to see what else we have to offer in terms of how we represent Filipino food in a different way. I think Las Vegas is one of the ultimate dining scenes in America. You know, you see a lot of chefs who are based out in New York, based out in California, and what do they want to do when they want to take it to the next level? You want to open a restaurant in Vegas. It's been really cool to see a lot of celebrity chefs come out here like Jose Andres, Mark Vetri, David Chang. But also having that in combination with the incredible local talent that is here in the restaurant scene. Like I've never been somewhere that has this really great African kitchen, but they also have this really authentic Thai restaurant. People see a lot of other businesses being able to shine and being able to succeed out here. And I feel like that's really motivated a lot of people to share their food as well, which has been really exciting to see. That was Kimberly McIntosh. From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com This is Most Jet Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Next up, it's The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am fine, Christopher. How are you? 
The holidays approach, uh, and you must have a thought or two about how to celebrate them. I do indeed. I am keenly looking forward to the two great feasts that decorate the month of November in America. Uh, I know what the first is. Uh, (laughs) Perhaps you might enlighten me about the second. Ah, the second one is the day after Thanksgiving. And one of the things that's been fascinating me for a long while is why it is that that second Thanksgiving feast, the Friday feast, the leftovers that we enjoy, is always, at least to my palate and to my heart, superior to the Thursday feast itself. Have you never found this to be true? No. Um, (laughs) Actually, no. I I mean, the feast of leftovers, if you want to call it something, uh, is charming and offhand uh, and tasty, but it does lack the social drama of the presentation of the Thanksgiving feast, I I would say. Well, I guess for me, the Thanksgiving feast, which I have prepared— as you do, every year for the past approximately 35 years for a crowd of people that, you know, grows or diminishes according and like according to the year, is always uh, effectively a study intention. It's always something that feels like putting on a play. I don't know if you do the same thing that I do, but about five o'clock on Wednesday night, the day before Thanksgiving, I start sort of tracking out hour by hour and even minute by minute what I'm responsible for. It's a little bit like the countdown to a launch in the old days, a, a space launch at Cape Canaveral. So from the time the turkey goes into the brine and the pumpkin pies are getting made, you're so well organized, Chris, you probably have all of this done a week before. But in our family, we really start on Wednesday afternoon and we go and collect the turkey and being a New York City family, we bring the turkey home on the subway. I used to try and convince my kids that smoked subway turkey was a very special New York uh, thing <laughs> that you had to bring the turkey home on the subway or it would lack the distinct special aroma that only New York can give to a turkey. So all of those things go on. But then as the hour of the feast approaches, things become more and more kind of crazy and harried intense. And of course, it's inevitably true that even if you have the most congenial group of people with you for Thanksgiving itself, there's always some kind of inner tension. Uh, we have had for years a wonderful group of people, but the source of my intention is always that people bring dishes to the feast, trying to be generous, compassionate, uh, and caring of the chef. But the chef has got every single burner and every single oven and every single inch of counter already occupied and has absolutely no place to put your beautiful dish of green beans amandine. Has, has this never happened to you? Well, you're not okay. You you, you need a lesson in in, in Thanksgiving management <laughs> organization. No, no, no. I mean, my my rule is please don't bring anything. I, I'm I'm the cook. You're the guest. I want you to come and enjoy yourself and have a good time. So, and I limit the menu to a fairly you know I I don't have twelve side dishes. So, a limited menu, one that is totally controlled by the cook, I think really solves that problem. Well, it would, wouldn't it? Yes. I, Christopher, I'm coming to your house for Thanksgiving next year. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to bring fine. you in to be the Thanksgiving disciplinarian here because I <laughs> always end up with no space and uh, too many uh, side dishes. But by the time all of that tension and all of that social diplomacy are over, I at least can no longer taste what's on my plate. And I'm not able to fully enjoy the meal that I've prepared for all those people. Yeah, that's fair. That's the fair. day after, on the other hand, when 6 o'clock rolls around and you have all that wonderful leftover turkey. And one of the truths, of course, we all know, is the turkey is an inherently tasteless meat. There, no matter what you do to turkey, it will always have an incredibly limited spectrum of taste. But gravy is an unimprovable right. thing. And gravy is always better the second day. Stuffing, to my 
taste is always better the second day. I gather from reading um, you real recipe mavens that that has something to do with oxidization, that it's an actual phenomenon, not just an emotional uh, response. But even if it were just an emotional response, it's joyful. Other thing I love about the leftovers feast is that you invite a different set of people than you would invite to the um, to the feast. So, so wait, so let me interrupt you for a second. So Thanksgiving are the people you have to invite, and the next day are the people you want to invite. <laughs> is that, exactly. Is that I could not is? have said it more succinctly, <laughs> if cruelly, <laughs> myself. Thanksgiving is the people you have to invite. Day after Thanksgiving are the people you actually want to see. One of the people who came to our house for Thanksgiving leftovers over the past decade was the great American novelist Philip Roth. I don't know if you've read Roth on Thanksgiving, but Roth loved Thanksgiving more than he loved any other day in the American calendar. He has uh, chapters about Thanksgiving in at least three of his novels that I'm aware of. And my, uh, my wonderful and socially acute wife had the very good idea, knowing that he was living alone in New York, of inviting him not for the Thanksgiving feast, but for the day after Thanksgiving. Hmm. And he loved it, and he joined us for most of a decade, the day after Thanksgiving. And he would talk beautifully and eloquently about why Thanksgiving was so good, and at the same time about why he always avoided going to any um, formal Thanksgiving and loved coming to eat our leftovers. And he made the point that Thanksgiving is the great American secular feast. It's the one thing that Jewish family in Newark, of the kind that he grew up in, and a wasp family in Salem, Massachusetts, can all enjoy on completely equal and indeed egalitarian terms. But at the same time, he didn't particularly care for extended families, so he liked coming to a kind of adoptive family to have his Thanksgiving. We were blessed to have him, and he was the person we really wanted to have because he was the funniest human being. And Philip Roth's favorite Thanksgiving activity was telling uh, old Jewish jokes um, that had a mildly dirty cast to our children. That was how he celebrated Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, and his families didn't turn out too well in his novels either, as I remember, right? No, the families in the novels don't, don't turn out particularly well, maybe because they celebrate Thanksgiving on the day instead of on the day after. Would you like to hear Philip Roth's favorite story, which he would tell on Thanksgiving or the day after Thanksgiving? Absolutely. Well, it was a story about a Jewish lady, Mrs. Goldstein, who goes on the old program, The $64,000 Question. And she goes on, and her specialty is uh, scripture knowledge. And the announcer says, in a very kind of old-fashioned radio voice, Mrs. Goldstein, are you ready for the $64,000 question? And she says, yeah, I'm ready. And he says, for $64,000, who was the first man? And she says, that I wouldn't tell you for a million dollars. Adam, you, you spend your holidays in a much more interesting manner than I do. Adam Gopnik, uh, the light side of Thanksgiving, especially with leftovers and Philip Roth, thank you. Ha- happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. That was Adam Gopnik. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. This Thanksgiving, we asked our listeners and friends to share with us their Thanksgiving moments. So we've gathered tales of disaster, culinary wisdom, and also memories of food and family. And we're going to play some of them for you right now. 
Hey, this is Adam Conover wishing you a happy Thanksgiving. And here's a Thanksgiving memory. A couple years ago, I got really into the idea of making like a really good turkey. Like one of those turkeys that had spent its whole life happy on a farm outside. And then when I finally roasted it, I thought it was underdone, but then it was overdone. And I was so stressed out. And I realized I had put so much importance on making the perfect turkey. I had robbed myself of the experience of enjoying it. And so now I go a little bit easier. I just buy a regular old bird and I shove it in the oven. The end. Hello, this is Alice Waters calling from Berkeley, California, and I do have a tip for Thanksgiving. With friends, we all cook together, so nobody has the responsibility. My name is Lior Levsurkars from La Boite. The one thing I really figure out, it's just one big chicken. That's all it is. One big chicken. It's Erin French from The Lost Kitchen in Freedom, Maine. I can never forget the time that we were all just about to sit down at the table to enjoy the feast that my parents had spent all day making. And just as my father was adding the last flakes of salt to season the gravy, the top of the shaker came off and the entire jar of salt poured into the gravy. There were a lot of expletives that followed, but there was nothing that a good amount of wine or a big pat of butter couldn't cure. Sometimes it's the not-so-perfect moments that we remember, and it's a memory that I still get a good laugh out of. Hi, I'm Sri Rao, author of Bollywood Kitchen. One of the great things about growing up in an immigrant family is that you're able to blend the best of two different cultures. My favorite combination today is the traditional roast turkey that we at home stuff with the Palestinian stuffing called hashwe which is a combination of rice, ground lamb, spices, and pine nuts. So it's American on the outside, Palestinian on the inside. We always had turkey, of course, and it was always served with rice, and there were so many pies. I just remember loads and loads of pies. Instead of eating turkey, we had some ceviches, salsa, chips, tamales, along with a couple other Mexican dishes and that's how we celebrated our first Thanksgiving. There was a strange bird awaiting us on the dining table of the first friends to welcome us in the United States as political refugees from the former Soviet Union. What is that, we said. It's a turkey, they said. It's Thanksgiving. They couldn't say thanks from whom to whom and for what, but you had to eat that bird once a year if you wanted to be an American. It was a while before we touched a turkey and a while more before we began to think of ourselves as Americans. This is Reem Cassis, author of The Palestinian Table. Hi, it's Emmy from Emmy Made in Japan. This is Gonzalo Gonzalez Guzman, chef from Nopalito Restaurant in San Francisco, wishing you a happy Thanksgiving. This is Boris Fishman, the author of Savage Feast, wishing you a happy Thanksgiving. Hey there, it's Andrea Nguyen, the author of Vietnamese Food Any Day. Hi there, my name is Sanjay. Hey everybody, this is Jarrell Guy, wishing you all a happy Thanksgiving. This is Terry from the Seattle area. Our wedding took place in the month of October, so within a few weeks we were thinking about our first Thanksgiving. Our first fight as a married couple was over, of all things, cranberry sauce. 
One of the Guy family's many holiday traditions is to serve two types of cranberry sauce every year. One I cook from scratch and the other one we buy in a can because half of us swear that nostalgia tastes best. The turkey turned out amazing. Everybody loved it. What we discovered about halfway through the meal is that there was an entire backup turkey that had been made by my now mother-in-law in the secret downstairs kitchen. We went out for prime rib at Lowry's on La Cienega in Los Angeles. So I like these people. They were unconventional, untraditional, and I like their style for Thanksgiving. In fact, I ended up marrying that man and we've been together ever since. Hello, this is Yuande Komalefe wishing you a happy Thanksgiving. This is Meathead from AmazingRibs.com. This is Joanne Chang, pastry chef and co-owner of Flower Bakery and Myers and Chang. This is Jeffrey Yaskwitz of the Gefilteria wishing you a happy Thanksgiving. I was hired to cater a Thanksgiving dinner for a very over-the-top client who wanted an abundance of food. She specifically asked for two turkeys, one to be eaten and one to be shellacked for a prop. Well, it was a disaster of a Thanksgiving because half of her guests didn't even show up. When I got home, I took her um, leftovers and turned them into mini versions of my favorite Thanksgiving food and invited my friends and family over for a day after the Thanksgiving do-over. We invited our Israeli and American friends together and I hosted what became my favorite Thanksgiving of all time, this mashup of cultures. And uh, it made me homesick for America and now thinking about it makes me homesick for those days in Tel Aviv. Luckily, um, all of the people on our guest list were either chefs or line cooks or sous chefs. And one by one, as people started to come, they all started to pitch in preparing the turkey, and the stuffing and all of the different side dishes, um, none of which I was prepared to do. You know, politics, religion, tribalism, they all try to divide us. But the thing about Thanksgiving that makes it so special is that most of us share pretty much the same menu. It's been my experience that a holiday in America is like a recipe that everyone knows, but you don't really have to follow precisely. The holidays are about adding what I've learned over the course of the years to the traditions that already exist. And so they really are about food memory. I'd like to say thank you to everyone who called in to share their stories, listeners, chefs, authors, and also friends. A complete collection of all the participants and holiday greetings can be found at MilkStreetRadio.com. And now it's time for me to share one of my favorite Thanksgiving memories. Years ago, when my mother lived on a farm in northwest Connecticut, our family of six drove over early in the morning to help with the cooking. The main house was late 18th century with a rusted iron fence, run-amuck shrubbery, a large hen house, and a Hollywood view of the Berkshires. It was a dark, ramshackle colonial, full of magazines and books, bowls of walnuts, lumpy but comfortable rose-patterned sofas, and a shoebox kitchen. My mother, Mary Alice, was a fan of Adele Davis, who wrote Eat Right to Keep Fit. In that book, she suggested cooking turkey at 170 degrees, 
A temperature, of course, that suggests an exponential proliferation of bacteria. So my first clandestine job upon arrival was to sneak into the kitchen and crank up the oven. Mary Alice was an avid but undisciplined organic gardener. She planted a half acre in Darwinian fashion, which means that the rest of the meal was an unseasoned mess of survivors. Misshapen carrots, parsnips, and turnips cooked in a microwave without the benefit of any seasoning. Desserts were provided by yours truly. The turkey always turned out just fine, and Mary Alice always trumpeted her low oven method, saying, quote, well, I haven't killed anyone yet. I smiled, but never disclosed my secret. One year after the midday feast, she took our two-year-old Caroline hand-in-hand for a walk amidst the chickens. Both were unsteady on their feet, one at the outset of life and the other near the end. Guinea hens pecked about, charcoal gray mountains half obscured by clouds loomed in the distance, and I watched the passing of life from one generation to the next. You know, Thanksgiving teaches us that we live the life of those who have gone before. I've learned to roast my turkey low and slow. I spend winter evenings in a room lined with books. I crack walnuts, and I keep a root cellar. And to the best of my knowledge, I haven't killed anyone yet. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in later and just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook. That's the new rules, recipes that will change the way you cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and we wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 